The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for an update on Silicon Valley Bank's failure and the fallout for the markets, the banking industry, and the financials. This isn't our usual Monday program, but these aren't usual times, as we all know. My guests today are Barron's Deputy Editor Ben Levison and Barron's Associate Editor Andrew Barry. They've been covering the crisis since Friday, and we'll talk a lot more about it on Barron's.com today and throughout the week. Welcome, Andrew and Ben. Sorry about that noise. Thanks so much for joining me on today's call. Great to be here. Andrew, you there? Yep, I'm with you. Glad to be here. Excellent, excellent. So, Andrew, I'm going to start with you and ask you to give an explanation of what went wrong at SVB, what went wrong with its depositor base, its mortgage holdings, and the rapid rise in interest rates. Can you fill us in? The problem at SVB was uh, actually not related to credit, which is also or bad loans, which often get banks in trouble, was because of mostly because of interest rate risk that they took. The SVB saw a huge influx in deposits in the uh, two years ending uh, in early 2022, and what they did is they they invested uh, uh, over almost 100 billion dollars in securities, basically U.S. mortgage securities, which have no credit risk, but as interest rates rose the value of that security portfolio declined. And then they started to see a decline in their deposit base. And then that is that. And so they were forced to sell assets or they, they moved to try to sell assets and, 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 and raise capital. And basically the, uh, we were unsuccessful in doing that. And that sparked a run. So um, it was essentially a, a mismatch between their, 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 their deposits and their and their assets, which were basically long longer term mortgage securities that led to the problem. So we had a question from a listener, Ray. He wanted to know what triggered the deposit withdrawals in the first place. You know, it's tough to say what I mean. The 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 immediate uh, uh, reason was that on last Wednesday they actually came out with a plan to raise to sell a group of. Low, a, a portfolio of lower yielding mortgage securities at a loss and raise about two billion dollars in capital, and so they tried to essentially present that as being like a, an end to their problem. But essentially, it spooked investors, it spooked depositors. The vast bulk of their deposits—they had almost uh, two, about 175 billion of deposits. The vast bulk of that were larger institutional deposits, which were not covered by the FDIC guarantee of $250,000 per account. And that spooked invest uh, uh, deposits, and they basically began to uh, uh, withdraw large amounts of deposits, as much as a quarter of the, of the deposit base disappeared relatively quickly. And that sparked a run, and they didn't have the essentially the money to pay people off. So it was an, an old-fashioned bank run in some ways. 
Well, and it was. It was also, Lauren, that, uh, you know, part of the problem with them is that they were very concentrated in one kind of customer, which are these, you know, uh, high growth, formula, formerly high flying companies, uh, a lot of startups, a lot of what we consider like these fast growth stocks. And we know all the pressure that these companies have been under. Money isn't free anymore. They're burning a lot of cash. And when they burn a lot of cash, they burn through the deposits they have at the bank. And so the bank had uh, an, an issue from just their the companies that they served having to use cash and that made deposits dwindled. And I, I think started this kind of domino effect that really made the securities uh, that they were holding become a huge issue. You might say there were two sorts of deposit withdrawals. The first as the companies with higher rates and, and a slower market. And then, of course, the run that Andrew just talked about. That's a good way of putting yeah, it. I mean, I, mean, I mean, a bigger issue now is whether or not uh, the current FDIC deposit ceiling, which guarantees deposits only up to a quarter million dollars, will essentially have to be changed. I mean, the Fed is essentially, the Federal Reserve is essentially guaranteeing all deposits now at, 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 S, at SVB, at Silicon Valley Bank, and effectively, they're essentially providing almost a blanket guarantee to the entire banking industry for deposits in excess of that quarter million dollar limit. So I think down the road, it's going to be an interesting regulatory issue about whether or not that this quarter million dollar deposit ceiling means anything anymore. Yeah, Andrew, I was going to ask you about that because like, okay, if you're a retail investor, staying within that 250,000 limit seems like it should be fairly easy. And if you do have more than that, you can divide it up between a few banks and you could do that fairly easily. But what? how can a company that's a multi-billion dollar company and it's running payrolls and has bills to pay to vendors, how, how is it even possible to stay below any kind of limit like that? Well, it, it's, it's impossible to do. And I think what people like Bill Ackman have pointed out on, in a series of tweets is that if the Fed doesn't effectively do that, it's going to concentrate deposits in the largest banks, which are essentially being too big to fail and are financially healthy. And so it may disadvantage smaller regional banks, which really in the past have not kind of benefited from this effective Fed guarantee of their deposits. So this guarantee effectively may be getting uh, applied or spread to the entire banking industry, which I think may may be fair from just how deposits treated. But then there becomes issues now of, of, of regulatory capital rules and just just and just how and how regulation is going to work if effectively this deposit guarantee really doesn't mean anything anymore. It's hard to see how it would mean anything. Who would stand for it? Once all these well, depositors have been covered, well, I mean, I mean, I mean deposits are, are inherently risk averse. While they're technically a creditor or or a, uh, of the bank, I mean, people don't think of themselves like that, and so it's it's really depositors are taking on a lot of risk by putting money in a bank. If basically, if the bank fails, they're going to be deemed basically an unsecured creditor of the bank if they have a large deposit, and they and so it it, it, it it's a, it's a very it's a very unusual kind of a difficult situation, which I think the regulators will be grappling with and struggling to address in the coming months. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that they, that needs to be thought about is that uh, the ease of moving your money now is is just inc- it's so easy um, with, the, with the Internet. So that it used to be that you'd have to go to the bank and withdraw your money or whatever. Now you just go log on to your computer, hit a few buttons, and the next day the money's gone. Yeah. It's moved to another yeah. institution. And I'm not sure that regulators have thought through how 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 modern banking works and how the internet has sped everything up. Um, and they need to because otherwise the only safe place ends up being under our mattresses and we don't want to go back to those days like in the you know 1920s, 1930s. Absolutely not. So Ben, perhaps you can walk us through 
what the government's backstop is all about. How are they going to manage this? How does it work? Well, they're basically, okay, I mean, first of all, the, the, the thing to know is that they are not going to bail out shareholders or bondholders of, of these banks. Um, those, uh, those people are going to take their losses. What they want to do is they want to protect uh, depositors because the depositors are the ones who put their cash there thinking that it was going to be fine. They'd be able to use the money for whatever it is they need to use it. In a business's case, it's often for payrolls, for vendors and things like that. And for individuals, it's uh, for, for savings. And so what they're trying to do, because the issue is not one of credit, it's not uh, something like uh, the financial crisis where you had loans going bad and like, how do you value these? And when the, the loans are worth nothing, what you have is you have treasuries, but the, with yields and, and that have gone up so much, um, these these treasuries have lost a, a lot of value. Um, if they were held to par, there, there's no money lost at all. If they're held to the maturity, you get all your principal back and there's no loss taken. But because of the, the price durations, there is a mark-to-market loss. And so what the Fed is doing is basically allowing banks to borrow against those holdings at their face value. Um, and so that will hopefully allow uh, banks that are feeling deposit pressures to be able to uh, access the cash they need to stay in business, to stay solvent until this period passes. So, Andrew, let's take a look at other regional banks and smaller banks. Signature Bank has now been closed, and there is tremendous turmoil today in the shares of many smaller and regional banks. What's going on, and how worried are you that the crisis could spread? Well, I mean, I mean, I, I don't think it will spread. And I think that the Federal Reserve is essentially standing by to provide liquidity. And so uh, I think I think there's concern that you know, deposits may, may shift from smaller and mid-sized banks to larger banks, which are perceived to be, you know, safer and with a more uh, explicit, uh, you know, for being regulatory support. But I, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's much that the people should be making so much of a distinction anymore. And so... Uh, it it, it, it it could be an overreaction, but I, I guess we'll have to see how things play out in the coming days. So you're also a student of the biggest banks, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America. You write about these a lot. You know them very well. What does the crisis mean for them besides being besides them becoming a magnet for deposits? Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, it could be a potential benefit to them in terms of if they if they're able to attract even more deposits. Right now, deposits generally are relatively low cost sources of funding for banks. And so, um, I mean, they could be, you know, the Goliath, you know, the Goliath of the banking system could be, could be the winners from all this. And so, um, uh, that could be something that, uh, that plays out. And, uh, and I think there'll be, there's also increasing focus on, you know, bank bond portfolios and the kind of losses that are basically embedded in the bond portfolios. And you may see more focus on that. And Andrew, it seems like some of these regional banks are actually pricing just that thing is almost the, the markdown in those portfolios um, as they as they get uh, hit today. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I guess many are getting close to the tangible book value or book value, which historically has been uh, has been, you know, a level of support for banks. And so, um, I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. But um, it's uh, I mean. I think I think now I think the, 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 some of the concerns may be shifting to loans and credit. I think if people are worried about the economy right now and what happens with that, I mean, banks are obviously exposed to the economy. They're inherently leveraged. They have sizable loan portfolios. There's increasing concerns now about commercial real estate, which has been a big focus of bank lending. So I think, you know, as interest rates have actually come down pretty sharply in the market, market rates in the last couple of days, I think the, the 
the uh, concerns now may be shifting to the credit side or essentially the quality of bank loan uh, bank loan portfolios, especially on the commer- for commercial real estate, which has been a very popular area for uh, for banks to lend to. Yeah, and the commercial real estate is one that kind of worries me on the on the loan side. Um, I was reading somebody I can't even remember who at this point. It's been such a wild few days, but just talking about uh, uh, VNO stock. That's uh, I'm going to pronounce it wrong. Vernado, Vernado, um, as kind of a, uh, a canary uh, in the coal mine for uh, for for banks. And if you look at it, uh, it's been getting hit. Um, hard and also it, it kind of broke its um, support level before all this bank stuff happened. I know that they're not uh, um, not really connected, but uh, they're still um, you know it, it, it's more coincidence than anything. But you have to look at this kind of sell off and say, are there how big are the problems here as well? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think if you look at commercial real estate right now, some of the biggest problems are in the office market. That's where you've seen some defaults. I mean, Vornado had a default on a what's called a non-recourse loan, meaning, meaning it didn't guarantee the loan, backed by some New York uh, retail properties on Fifth Avenue. And so you're seeing other office-related defaults and problems. And Vornado, which is a New York, big New York owner of New York offices, has seen its share price hit because there's been a uh, you know, pressure on the New York office market because of the whole work from home trend. And it and SL Green, which are the two big New York office REITs, have seen their share prices hit pretty hard. But other areas of commercial real estate, whether it be warehouses, which, you know, service the e-commerce market, as well as uh, apartments, garden apartments and others, have been quite strong. You've seen, you've seen some moderation in rent increases, but you saw very strong rent increases last year. And data centers are doing relatively well. So, I mean, I would I would say that in I mean malls. I mean the the largest malls are doing pretty well. I mean weaker malls are hurting, but that's been going on for some time. So I would say overall, commercial real estate looks reasonably good. But aside, aside from pockets, that I mean such as uh, the some of the uh, coastal office markets. That's the first encouraging news we've heard today. Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. So Ben, the bank, the Fed rather stress tests banks every year to ensure that they have enough capital to withstand the crisis. But you made a great comment at our morning editors meeting that they were testing the wrong stress. Tell me what you meant by that and where you think they failed. Sure. Well, actually, I don't think a lot of this is on the Fed because remember, the Fed really just handles the biggest banks. Um and and the stress tests are are on these biggest ba- banks. But the stress that is, uh, but that being said, and the, the, where the stress is now is not be it's not in credit the way that it was in two thousand eight, and where all the worries have been for a very long time. But it's in the rising of rates themselves, and in the portfolios uh, that the the com- of securities that these companies hold. And it's unclear whether the the Fed has stressed. Um, Done this, performed a stress test on what happens to these banks when the yields rise. Um, you know, they have these uh, portfolios, uh, two separate portfolios of securities, one that uh, is called uh, held to maturity um, and the other is available for sale. And the held to maturity, they're supposed to just be able to keep it, not worry about marking it to market. Um, but people are, are really focusing on that right now because uh, that, that held to maturity, as we saw with um, Silicon Valley Bank, they did have to, to sell some, some of these and it really caused big issues. Um, and, and so I think that's the, the big thing is that when we when we stress test, I, I think everybody, even regulators, are often focused on the last crisis 
um, and not thinking about what the next one will be. And the next one is often very, very different. Um, and, and I think that's the case this time, is that it really is about the value of the securities that uh, people hold, not because of credit risks, but because of the rising rates that when, when uh, rates go up, prices fall. Um, and uh, it, it's that simple. And that means that they have uh, less in the way of securities and they did, uh, or their, their value of those securities, if they do have to sell, is lower than they would be otherwise. I mean, the, the irony about this, Lauren, is that um, after the crisis, banks were encouraged to make, you know, uh, essentially by the way the risk weightings and capital weightings works for banks to invest in, in securities such as treasuries or U.S. More, federal agency mortgage securities, which have almost no credit risk. And so the irony is that banks have piled into an area that the regulators essentially have, have encouraged them to do. The problem with Silicon Valley Bank and some of the other banks that that have done this is they basically invested in long-term mortgage security, 15-year, 30-year mortgage securities at essentially at, at, at the lows and, and rates of around 2%. So there's stuff now with, with essentially below market yielding securities of around 2%. That was the problem they did. That was a big problem at Silicon Valley Bank is that it was really poor asset liability management in terms of ex- basically buying long-term mortgage security funded by deposits. And that, that, that really that, 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 that could be a problematic development for banks. That's what doomed banks. If people remember back in the 1970s, you had a massive rise in interest rates in the 1970s, and banks and thrifts had to pay much higher deposits on uh, rates on their deposits. At the same time, their loan rates were fixed, and they basically got squeezed, and eventually many of them folded. That's a, we're seeing a smaller version of that right now. Yeah, so and Andrew, Andrew, that's uh, oh, sorry, Lauren. I, I was just saying, Andrew, that was a great point uh, about uh, the way that the bank regulations are set up. Is that a lot of is that banks really have were encouraged to go into treasuries, regardless of and, and mortgage backed securities, regardless of where yields were. Um, a lot of ironies here. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it, it's hard. And I know that uh, there, people are going to be talking about the risks of all this, and they should have known. But I'm not sure they had much of a choice either. So, Andrew, I have a question. I don't know that there's an answer to it, but if you are an individual investor and you own a lot of bank stocks, how do you go about learning what your bank, what your banks have invested in? How, how do you know what what some of their holdings are? Is there a way for an individual well, investor to tell? Well, it's interesting. I mean, this issue got almost no has gotten no attention from analysts and investors up until recently. It's interesting that SVB, the parent of Silicon Valley Bank, which failed on Friday, their CEO was at a Morgan Stanley conference on Tuesday and got zero questions about their balance sheet, deposit issues, and some of the risks that were there. There was a lot of questions about venture capital and the IPO market. So this is something that has only recently become a, a concern of investors. Investors should look in bank, um, often in their earnings reports or in supplemental releases, which often accompany the earnings report, you'll see the portfolios of the banks. They basically lay out their securities portfolios. They classify it by how the, by accounting statement, whether it's available for sale or held in maturity. And they show you not only the, uh, the, the, uh, the current market value and, and the carrying value. So you can see what the embedded losses are and you can see what the, what the effect of maturity of these uh, of these portfolios are so I would look in 10Ks. I would look in the if you can't find them in the earnings releases, look in the supplemental financial reports that typically come out at the same time as the earnings releases. And if not in their 10Qs or 10Ks, it's all there. And uh, the analysts really have not really focused much on that. You'll, I think you'll see more focus on it now, though. For sure, hiding in plain sight in some ways. Right. Say. 
So exactly. before we go to listener questions, we have a lot of them. Ben, I want to just ask you about the market's response to this. Stocks were up, then they were down. Now they're up again. Bond yields, of course, have come way down. Bitcoin, unbelievably, is up. How do we interpret all of this? Why do you think the market's reacting as it is? Well, I mean, I think the market's reacting um, it, it, really to um, to the, what the uh, regulators did last night. Um, I was actually surprised to see him down because it's often when regulators do make this kind of move that the market starts to rally. Is what we saw during all the the big crises, and um, we're, we're starting to see uh, today um, that uh, you know the market really did. Um, uh, you know, it got hit hard um, initially, and I think there was just a lot of fear. A lot of people selling off the off the the regional banks, in particular, um, have just gotten uh, wrecked. The KRE is down a, a ton, or was. Um, but there, a couple things happen. One is we do know that the, the Fed is trying to prevent uh, a bigger problem, um, and we also know that uh, if you look at the the chart uh, for the S and P, we came pretty close to the next support level, which would be thirty eight hundred. Um, and, and I think that has to do with it as well. Is that people, uh, you know, they see the selling, they see the support hold, they see what the regulators are doing, and they think, okay, you know what, that this is under control. It's not going to be a bigger issue, and so you get a bounce. We also had a pretty large sell off uh, last week, and um, you know, so it was before. Right. So, it, it, you know, the, the S&P actually turned negative uh, earlier today. We've given back all the gains on the year. The year started off great. Now those gains are gone. And we're back to sort of battling to see what will happen. I mean, I think I think investors essentially think that the Fed may be done uh, tightening rates or, or raising interest rates and that we're basically much closer to a pivot or an end to the, to the rate increases because of this crisis with SVB. And I think the bull case would be that the Fed's going to control this issue, that uh, there's not going to be uh, a recession, but that so the Fed's kind of gotten a warning about, you know, potential risks in the banking system they're not, and, and, and the economy. And basically that there'll be hawkish uh, views of the Fed and of, of, of Jerome Powell are basically uh, are basically just talk and or maybe maybe reverse that. Essentially, we're embarking on a, on a much more benign interest rate environment. The bond market's had a big rally, and I think the expectations about where the Fed funds rate or short-term rates are going to peak are, are essentially coming down right now. That's what I think the market is getting excited about. Yeah, and there's actually, if you look at uh, CME FedWatch, which does the probabilities based on the mm-hmm. Fed funds futures market, we have a 73% chance of a pause now priced in, or sorry, um, we have a, a 26% uh uh, chance of, of of a pause priced in. I think that's what you're what you're getting at is that th- there's a good chance that uh, you know the Fed you know there's a decent chance the Fed does nothing. We might see those odds go up uh, um, even more uh, over the next few days, and uh, that'll get people excited in the short term. I think uh, long term, what you have to think about is that when you get into these periods, it's often when the the cutting starts is actually the market goes down. Um, that was certainly the case in uh, 2007, 2008. It was also the case in 2000. Um, and so I think investors have to be careful for what they wish for. So if, if the Fed is done for now, if a pivot is coming, what does that mean for inflation? It, it's supposed to, we get CPI reported tomorrow. It's supposed to show 6% inflation. What does that mean for the inflation outlook? I mean, it, it, at the most, it may, may not be great, but I think people, I think people generally think that the, the view is that rates are high enough as it is, and um, and that um, you know the Fed doesn't really have to go much more. I mean that that that's the bullish view, and that uh, that Powell's overreacting, and that uh, this is just going to get them to finally change their tune, and that inflation's coming down no matter what, 
and that uh, you know that's the bull case for stocks right now. It's also the bear case for stocks right now. Um, is that <laughs> the, the the Fed has done too much? Um, inflation. How are we going to solve inflation the way that inflation always gets solved? You have a recession. Um, and I, I mean, I think that this is going to we're going to continue this. Uh, you know, I, I think that it, it's it's funny that we had this whole no landing talk going on a little while ago because uh, and, and also not only the no landing talk, but we were wondering why aren't the Fed's rate hikes working uh, just a couple of weeks yeah. ago? That, that was our narrative. And you know what? Uh, this shows that the Fed rate hikes are working um, and probably right. better than anyone thinks. Lauren, well, why, why don't we take some questions now? That's exactly where I was going. So I'm going to put the first one to you. We have a question from Michael. Is the view that high interest rates are good for banks because of their positive impact on net interest market margins just plain wrong at this point? What do you think, Andrew? Well, I mean, I, I, think, I think that there's some truth to that, the extent that, uh, that banks uh, benefit from uh, the uh, wider interest rate margins. But I think the problem you're seeing now is that Interest rates of uh, the gap between market interest rates and money market funds of like four, four and a half percent and deposit rates of like below one has gotten to be very wide. And banks are seeing um, in, uh, depositors, you know, at the margin, moving money out of accounts where they don't they don't need to basically be in low in in low yielding accounts to market interest rates. I, I think it's a real it's a it's a risk for banks. It's a big risk for companies like Charles Schwab and and uh, and, and others which have benefited from that. All right. We have a question from Ian. Also, Andrew, I'm going to ask you, what is your opinion about the possibility of more bank mergers creating bigger banks, which might add to confidence among investors and others? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm somewhat doubtful. I mean, the regulators have taken a pretty harsh look at bank mergers. I mean, they, they, they see them as being anti-competitive. The Biden administration is anti-merger, uh, has an anti-merger view basically across the entire stock market and the economy, they seem to be challenging virtually every merger. And I think, uh, I'm not sure whether this this situation is going to change that. There have not been many bank mergers. Maybe whatever, wherever there has been, it's been very closely scrutinized. The biggest banks really can't do them unless they're basically, they're coming in to like save a, a fairly institution or take over a fairly institution. So I would tend to think you're not going to see much happening in the bank sector for that reason. Okay, Ben, one for you. Why didn't Silicon Valley Bank sell any of its low-yielding mortgages back to the federal government, which was the very body that encouraged lending at those rates, and the Fed was buying them up after long COVID? Excuse me, long after COVID ended. Yeah, it, it was it was a bad risk management choice on on their point is uh, on their part, as Andrew pointed out. Um, you know, the uh, they just looked at this and they 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 basically what it's called the carry trade, where is you uh, you know you borrow you you lend short and you borrow long because um, that's where the the best yields are. And as long as there there isn't volatility, you're fine. Um, it happens at the currency markets all the time, where people go out and they borrow things like the the Japanese yen, and then they go out and they buy high, higher yielding emerging markets currencies, except when things get scary, then everybody has to sell their emerging market currencies by the end, the end goes up. And that's basically what was going on here. They were getting all these cash deposits from these VC, uh, from these VC back companies, from these growth companies, they were flush with cash um, in post COVID. Um, and they had to put the money somewhere and they, they, they went out uh, and they did, uh, they, they did um, mortgage backed securities uh, pretty far out. And then those securities repriced. Um, it was just, it really was bad risk management on their part. And they just uh, they really had no option when it came time to sell, um, but to take a loss on it. And that really spooked people. So to continue with that, I, I, theme, 
Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, one of the problems with mortgage foods very quickly is that if interest rates rise, their effective, their effective maturity lengthen, which really hurts you as a bondholder. It's called negative convexity in bond math, and it's, a, it's one reason why it can be challenging to hope uh, mortgage securities in a rising interest rate environment. Okay, negative convexity. We should come back to that in another call, but good point. So I'm going to paraphrase a question by Peter about the accounting rules regarding hold to maturity and available for sale securities on, that banks hold. What's going to happen to this accounting rule? It seems like it seems like they didn't matter so much in the case of Silicon Valley. Do you have well, a thought it, there? I mean, it, 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 did, it did matter. I mean, essentially, if you have uh, securities in the held for available for, for sale category, any losses on those uh, securities, they don't go slow through your income statement, but they do reduce your capital base. If they're in the held and maturity category, the losses do not hit your capital base. And the promise at SVB is they had a $15 billion mark-to-market loss in their held and maturity portfolio and only $16 billion of capital. So investors said, well, if you actually realize those losses, you essentially effectively wipe out your capital. And I think there's going to be more attention now on the adjusted capital ratios of bank if basically their held and maturity securities were essentially sold. And, and if, I mean, at, at, at current rates. And so even though they don't have to do it, they, they, they're, they're vowing not to sell these things. I think there's going to be more attention about, about that calculation. Yeah, and, and there have been all these rules in place. I mean, if you you could put them into the whole to maturity and then if you and you can't just move them back and forth without nothing happening. If you move something out, um, I believe you have to reprice your whole whole portfolio. I mean, there's just a, a lot that uh, that goes goes on there. And so it, it most of the time it really isn't a problem until you get something like what has happened now where one one bank does have to go ahead and sell and then everybody extrapolates to the other banks saying, well, if they had to as well, then it would look like this. And that's what the market is doing now because we know that uh, this is one of those things they didn't think was going to happen and then it did. I mean, so, I, mean I, I think it's, I, I think it's going to lead the increased attention on this accounting rule, which I think has been abused to some degree. And so... Um, and so I, I think it's something for the accountants and the railways we'll, we'll be taking a, a closer look at now in the future. And that, I think, is the heart of Peter's question. Is that accounting yeah. rule? So thanks for that. All right. A it's, question. It's, for, uh, it, go ahead. Go on. No, go on, please. No, I was going to say a question for Ben. Lee asks, has the, have this past weekend's events and subsequent index performance affected your short to medium term outlook on stocks? Um. God, that's a good question. Um, no, I, I think we're still uh, heading for a new low at some point, but I do see that uh, you know the market uh, responded fairly well to uh, uh, to things today. We'll see how that goes. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I just think you have to be careful. Um, one of the things that we've uh, been doing with some of the in some of the Barron's writing um, has been looking at the sectors that really sold off uh, at the start of the year. And it's the things they're doing well today, like staples and whatnot. So I think that those are the kind of things that uh, were worth buying um, when, when people were saying, oh, this this is all over. Um, it, we're shifting to the more quality stocks and things like that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it, 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 I think it does force me to rethink a little bit about the optimism that we get to 4,300, um, like Barry Bannister was talking about. But I don't think that case is dead yet. All right. Um Peter has a question, another question. Andrew, I'm going to put this to you. It's a good one. How is it possible that regulators allowed a bank of the size of SVB to operate without a chief risk officer for nine months in 2022? 
I mean, I, I, I'm not sure. I, mean, I, 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 don't, I really can't answer that. I mean, I, I'm not really familiar with the regulatory situation. Clearly, I mean, it doesn't appear to have been a smart move. I mean, the regulators clearly dropped the ball in, as far as the, as far as this bank was concerned in terms of its risk controls. And it's, I mean, it's, it was clearly more risky than, and, than, uh, than was commonly perceived. I think the rating agencies missed it, too. I think my, my understanding is that, uh, you know, this company was, was basically single-A rated, uh, uh, bond credit up until recently, so there. I think that there's, there's a lot of blame to go around uh, as, as far as the problems at, at SVB. All right, maybe one more question from Mark. Um, please address the nexus between supply chains and bank concentration. Do either of you have a thought about that? Um, no, no, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Mark, we will think about it and get back to you on that one. So there are some other news going on this week. We mentioned CPI. There are a couple of companies reporting earnings. Ben, why don't we run through them quickly? Yeah, this, the, the CPI was uh, more payrolls on Friday and then CPI this week were supposed to be the highlights. Uh, um, and then uh, all this stuff uh, started happening with the banks. I think C- CPI on Tuesday is still going to be important. Um if if it comes in hot, um, I, I think it raises questions like, uh, you know, what what does the Fed do? Because it has to deal with the banking crisis on the one hand, but inflation that isn't cooling down on the other. So I think if if it's hot, there could be problems. If it's if it's not the, this this healing process that looks like it's starting to take shape, um, perhaps could um, uh, could continue. But I, I think it's going to be very important to watch this. It's supposed to come in at 0.4% uh, month over month. Uh, that would be down from 0.5% um, uh, during January. And it would be, uh, I think, uh, 6% year over year, which would be down from 6.4%. So we're just looking for that continued slowdown. And if that happens, I think that's that, that's great. It means that the, the Fed could turn its attention to uh, what it needs to with the financial system. Uh, if it comes in hot, it's be problems. So we also have retail sales. They'll be reported Wednesday. Give us a good look at the health of the consumer. What do you expect there? Um, the, we had a huge jump in January. It was 3%. And that was very unexpected. And this time we're supposed to get a tiny little rise. I think it's 0.05%. Um, and, and, I, and I think that would be accepted as well, that uh, you know people just want to know that the economy is going to hold up, that uh, we're, that the, there aren't those recessionary signs yet, but that, um, you know, that uh, we're, we're not seeing the, the signs that uh, it, it's it's still going too strong. And so it, it's just if we see that uh, retail sales have slowed back to a more typical number, I, I think the market will be fine with it. Um, the consumer is the thing that's been propping up uh, the economy now. It's uh, people are flush with cash, um, not necessarily from the money that they got during COVID, but because they have jobs still those jobs uh, they've gotten uh, raises and they're still spending that money um and so i think uh, the market would like to see that number hold up but not be as strong as it was in january so we haven't talked about the impact of all of this on the housing market lenar is reporting tomorrow that's a big home builder give us a look at the earnings and we'll close with a look at the housing market yeah lenar is an interesting one um in some ways this uh um, what's going on is uh, may actually help the home builders. Um, the the ten year yield uh, dropped from uh, it was over four percent last week. Now it's under three point five percent. That means that there's a good chance mortgage rates come down, and lower mortgage rates would be 
good for a company like Lennar. So you're seeing the stock, it got hit a little bit this morning. Now it's up 1.65%. It's actually been going kind of sideways through all this stress. Um, and uh, it's, it's actually, uh, if you just look at the stock, you would not know that there are any problems with the housing market. It's up 10% this year, but it's also up uh, 20% year over year. Um, it really hit its lows uh, much earlier than everything else did. Um, the stock is supposed to um, report a profit of $1.55. That's down from $2.70 in the same uh, quarter a year ago. Um, but I suspect that you know what you're seeing is that uh, investors are starting to think, well, maybe this is the low there uh, in the earnings and we can start seeing uh, them start to tick back up um, if the mortgage market starts to heal a bit. Okay. I mean, Lauren, Lauren, I, Lauren, Lauren, I say this briefly in, in 20 seconds. I say some of the hotter housing markets have been cooling off, but some markets like Florida remain strong. The New York area market is surprisingly strong. You're seeing bidding wars in suburban New Jersey, a strong market in Westchester. The bidding wars in Manhattan for apartments. So, I mean, if there, if there is a recession here coming, it's not visible in, in, in a lot of these key markets right now. Very well said. All right, so let's close 30 seconds each. What are you looking at? What should investors be looking at as the week unfolds? Ben, what do you think? I'm watching 3,800 on the S&P 500. That line has to hold. If it does, I'll be happy. Okay, Andrew? I, I, I focus on on interest rates and see, and just look look at the treasury market and, and how that continues to do and also what, what expectations are, how they're playing out for uh, the Fed and short-term interest rates. Sounds good. Thank you both for a wonderful call. Thanks for enlightening us. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in and thanks for your great questions. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, Barron's banking reporter, Carlton English, will host the call with a special guest. Please check the reservation form for more details later today. Carlton has been covering the crisis since it broke Friday, as have Ben and Andrew, and she'll have some important updates. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.